This week on Trek Mary Kill, belts, Vulcans, Aichaya, no! Next. <laughs> At the edge of the universe, 400 men and women are probing the immeasurable blackness of space. Their leaders are an Earthman with no fear and a stranger with no heart. Travel beyond our time and solar system into new galaxies, into worlds beyond your dreams. Star Trek, every week, in color, on the NBC television network. Your five minutes are up, Captain. Surrender your ship or prepare to fight. I will not surrender my ship. Now, every weekend, Nickelodeon's beaming up the adventures of Star Trek. We are prepared to go to war if we have to. Ready, phasers. Phasers armed and ready, sir. Fire. We've got triples on the ship, Klingons in the quadrant. It can ruin your whole day, sir. Join Nickelodeon and the crew of the Starship Enterprise for Star Trek. Live long and prosper. Star Trek, every weekend on Nickelodeon. Trek, Mary, kill. Hi, I'm Brian. Hi, I'm Lori. Welcome to Trek, Mary, Kill, a podcast that never mourns episodes of Star Trek unless they waste our time. Beaming aboard for a return engagement, I'm very excited to have you back. It's Lori Olster from TrekMovie.com, where she co-hosts the All Access podcast. She also produces TV. She was a supervising producer on After Trek. She's a writer. She's co-authored books, The Way of the House Husband, The Gangster's Guide to Housekeeping, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine Confidential Case Files the official companion to the hit sitcom. And before all that, she was the copy editor for the book Star Trek, the official guide to the animated series. Lori, it's so great to have you back. Welcome. Thank you so much. I love your podcast. I've been (laughs) listening to it a lot. It makes me very happy. I'm so glad to hear that you've been one of our biggest supporters and, and I'm very grateful. And thank you so much for coming back for this being for our purposes, the expert on the animated series. And I know you're going to push back on that, but you are for this this episode. I mean, the experts are Rich and Aaron who wrote the book. (laughs) Well, they're not here. You're here. But how did you come to copy edit that book? Well, so I know them both. I met Rich. Actually, I met both of them through Trek Movie because they both used to be involved and sometimes dip back in. And so they were doing this book and Rich knew that I had that I was doing a lot of copy editing sort of mostly for Trek movie and places like that. And he can, I will never ever stop being grateful to him for this. He convinced the publisher that they should hire me to copy edit the book. And it led to a whole second career. Like I'm a copy editor at audible. Now that's my day job. That's Fantastic. So Aaron Harvey and Rich Shepis, is that what I'm saying? Yes. So they wrote the book. It's a beautiful book. It's gorgeous. Star Trek, the official guide to the animated series. Everyone should get it. It's uh, what, four years old now? I think so. Well, here's the funny thing. So some of the pages didn't get to me, Mm. you know, before they went to press. And one of the ones that didn't get to me on the very first book I ever copy edited, and I've done like five or six books since, was the page that has my name on it (laughs) for the credits. And so my name is spelled incorrectly. Can, Can I spell it for people? (laughs) <laughs> please okay <laughs> copy editor lowry Lor- yeah. how how we say it? l-a-u-i-r-e ulster yeah. 
La Ire. Yeah, <laughs> that's my first copy edited book. Thank you. <laughs> that's incredible. You know what, though? Your name is on the same page as the Enterprise, so it kind of balances out. Yeah, I'm actually just, I'm very happy to be associated with the book. I think it turned out great. And there hasn't been anything else that really covered the show the way that those guys did. And they're such great guys. And it's a beautiful book. And I'm proud to have my name spelled incorrectly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I my recommendation is if you're like a fan of the, the TNG and the Deep Space Nine companion books, like this is perfect for the animated series. Yeah. It's of a kind with it. And and if you're a completionist or you're just interested in that level of detail, you should do it. It goes through the whole animation process for the time. Uh, I have experience with like modern animation. It's interesting to read the differences then versus now, like how they do things. But um, the animated series, let's just talk about the animated series a little bit here. It was it was one of the many stepping stones to saving Star Trek. I know you on the All Access podcast have talked about like the current state, like in 2023, in October 2023, when we're recording this, like maybe the next year or two, it's not the the future is a little unclear. But I think yeah. it's safe to say we're in a pretty stable period in this moment of for Star Trek that got here, I think, because of a series of stepping stones of which the animated series is one. I have all of them, by the way. It's this the Trimble's letter writing campaign to help get season three. The animated series is the second stepping stone. And then Star Wars, unfortunately, because it canceled phase two. I say in Star, unfortunately, I'm not a big Star Wars fan. Oh, <laughs> like, poor Star Wars. Yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't need my support it's at doing all. Fine. Yeah, it's yeah. doing great. Uh, <laughs> we had a talk and we agreed we should just go our own separate <laughs> way. Uh, it's not you, it's me. Yeah, exactly. So that canceled phase two and that gave us the motion picture, which gave us the Wrath of Khan, which I think you know, sustain the movie franchise. And then the second season of the next generation, and then the best of both worlds cliffhanger. And finally, Chris Pine. <laughs> I think that whole set is what's given us that Star Trek's going to be around for a long time. Even if it fades here in the next few years, I don't think it's going anywhere in 10 years, 15. I don't think we're going to be like, Oh, it's a dead franchise. No. Um, I mean, there were times in my life when I thought it was. Yeah. Twice. It, do you remember the first time you watched the animated series? Well, so the animated series was not on, as far as I can tell, in Canada. Like, I found out it existed as a kid and was like, where does one see such a thing? <laughs> and, you know, this was, I'm going to sound like I'm 150 years old, but there weren't video stores back then. <laughs> like, there was, you could not find them if they weren't on TV. Yeah. If they weren't in the listings being broadcast somewhere. So it took me a long time. And then finally, I think I probably rented a couple once I saw them in video stores. And then my brother finally bought me like a set of the whole series. So I was already like a grown up adult <laughs> as much as I can claim to be one now. So it's uh, worth pointing out, this is the 50th anniversary year of the animated series Big deal. It's not exactly why we're doing animated segments of Trek, Mary Kill. It just kind of worked out where I'm like, all right, I got to figure out how we can fold this in. That was the one complaint we got for solid from our oh. first season was like, why do you know you're disrespecting the animated shows? And, well. and that's not entirely <laughs> the case. Uh, but the first time I ever saw the animated series was when it got that DVD release, the first DVD release. Yeah, that's probably when my brother bought it for me, too. And I think I had heard about it and maybe seen it or something. 
And and I think maybe before the DVD release, it was more or less sort of a goof. And of course, I'm too young to have experienced the, the Star Trek is Star Trek. It is part of the canon, which the book gets into. Like this is always intended to be. It's not a cartoon. It's just animated, and it's Star Trek. Uh, so the idea that it was canon or not, I just I was like I could always put this off to the side. But I remember watching those DVDs and also just being at a point in my life where. Uh, I think growing up pop culture wise, you know, it's like the seventies were a joke, you know, it's like they were its own kind of, so then seeing something of that time, you know, with the sort of heart to heart version of the theme song, you know, heart to heart was a very uh, TV Remember that show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so that was like, to me, the seven, that and the Brady bunch. I'm like, that's the seventies <laughs> in my head. And, uh, and this kind of being a part of that was, was interesting, but. Well, in the 70s was also an era where they made cartoons using characters from live action shows. Yes. And they were terrible knockoffs. And most of them, the characters had a band. Right. Whether they did like the Brady kids or whatever. But um, they were not good. No. Most, most of those. Scooby-Doo and the Flintstones, right? Both also products of the 70s. Flintstones yeah. good though. Yeah. Flintstones, uh, I, I, it's so funny because we used to come home for lunch from um, elementary school and watch the Flintstones. And I think, imagine showing it to my teenagers now who would be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> like this weird, sexist, anachronistic, yeah. bizarre, like what is going on here? <laughs> then you have to explain the honeymooners and the concept yes. of laugh tracks. Yeah, exactly. The whole so, thing. Yeah. I mentioned Scooby-Doo and I, I can't go, I can't let a Scooby-Doo reference go by without saying I hate Scrappy-Doo and everything Scrappy-Doo represents and uh, resent that they foisted him on the public to this well, day. <laughs> I would say even as a kid, I, I kind of hate watched Scooby-Doo. I never <laughs> particularly liked it, but I watched a lot of it because when I was a kid, you just kind of watched what was on. <laughs> yeah. that, I mean, that's I think that's an amazing point to make, because that is what Saturday morning cartoons. Yes. Basically were. And I'm sure you had your own schedule. You hop network hop like I don't like the show, but I like the show. We're going to wait for this one. I mean, that's what I had. Well, for me, it was like there was Bugs Bunny and then there was not Bugs Bunny. So I (laughs) loved Bugs Bunny. And then a lot of everything else was just kind of not as good and sort of crappy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Ninja Turtles, that was a big one for Saturday morning for me. Um, You know, so I miss having Star Trek there because I had it only in live action. But basically, the animated series that we're discussing today, it's completely of its time. I mean, unmistakably every aspect of it the animation style the music everything the the whole production process so listener we're doing a stripped down format most of its time quality which statistically is technically most of the time when people tune out (laughs) that's what i tend to get on a soapbox (laughs) i've noticed that is not going to be one of our grades for these animated segments so but back to our level one diagnostic episode where i mentioned that we got a lot of scrutiny uh, for not including the animated. It was partly because I was trying to figure out the format. We have a, a format that is for an hour long show. These are half hour episodes. But I also went, so we figured that out and then also decided that Star Trek Prodigy, which is, you were one of the first people that I could remember in the Star Trek media stratosphere to really say like, everyone should be watching this show. It's so good. It's the ultimate Star Trek. It's so great. I don't even feel like it's dialed down for kids. I just think it's an incredible Star Trek show and it's gorgeous. 
it is a beautiful show. It is, it's one of those times where you can, I mean, I don't want, I don't like saying negative things about the other, taking shots of the other shows, but you can see all the money spent on Prodigy on the screen in yes. the making of it. Sometimes with the other shows, I'm like, what, 15 million? Where'd that go? So <laughs> anyway, uh, but for this one, it's very clear. It is a beautiful show. It's well-made. It's a lot of fun. And I agree with you. It's, it's not aimed at kids, but part of the reason is in my mind, it is intended to be for children. So the idea of running it through our ringer, we kind yeah. of just said, trek it out. Like everyone, I'm sure you would be able to say, this is a Mary. This is like as good as any Star Trek. Um, I, in the 20 episodes, the first season, I haven't run across one that I'm like, that's amazing, but I like really strong treks for sure. But maybe that's something we can revisit. But I just want to put it out there. Star Trek Prodigy is a show everyone should be watching. It's not one we're going to be teeing up in the near future. So I just wanted to put it out there and you being its biggest advocate get you to again just give it a stamp of approval <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's not a show i'd want to sort of i don't want to say rip apart because your podcast doesn't rip things apart it's a fun playful way to look at the show with a lot of affection but i feel like i want it i would want to be kinder and gentler to prodigy probably like because also there's like a kid in it too. Yeah, ex exactly it's like it just seems me it seems kind of mean to to at all critics like have a, even sort of a tinge to it and i the show is so not careful what am i trying to say it's thoughtful thoughtful and there's so much love and affection put into everything and it's yeah it is designed for someone as young as seven years old to start watching it like you can see it all there on, on the screen i so i think it's great the protostar looks beautiful um, Janeway and kids, who would have thought that that was a, I, a good mix? <laughs> it works beautifully. Yeah. It, and it, it just, it has so much heart and it has very deep emotion and a lot of comedy. Like they just seem to have gotten the tone spot on. Yeah. We're going to talk about two episodes of the animated series today. That's the value proposition of the, these animated segments. We're going to talk about the first two of the animated series from 1973. The first episode, Beyond the Farthest Star, and then Yesteryear, the second episode. One last little thing I want to say broadly about the animated series. It's actually two things. Real quick, though. <laughs> the animated series I mentioned, it's like a, it was like a goof because it was about the 70s. But I kind of want to put this out there for people who are on the fence. And I think there's a big contingent of animated people saying like they, they love Lower Decks and they they love Prodigy and they see it as as a kind with all the live action stuff. But I don't think I think there's a weird like with the original series and the animated series. I think people do have the age blinders on where they do segment it off. So what am I trying to say? I got criticism for saying we're going to hold the animated shows off to the side. And they're like, Lower Decks is just as much a part of Star Trek as anything else. I don't think the the Venn diagram is a complete circle when it comes to those same people saying the same thing about the animated series. I'm here to tell you, it's pretty, it's the original series. It's very close. It is as much Star Trek as Lower Decks as the original series. I have this thought of when the motion picture before the most recent remaster, which I think is brilliant, I had bought the original director's edition DVD and I had seen the movie before all the tinkering. And, I, you know, I was bored. It was whatever. It's a Star Trek movie. Great, great. But it was long and kind of plotting. There's a lot of critical reassessments. One of those points in the critical reassessment was this is as close to the original series as we got. And it was the last time the crew vaguely or really looked like their TV show selves. 
So there is some element of that energy from 69 carrying over. It's only 10 years later. Um, and I agree with that because starting Star Trek two as great as Star Trek two is, they all look different. They're, the age is right there. The costumes, everything, the vibe is different, but here's the animated series. It's right in between. It's got all the same writers, the same voices. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're rotoscoping quote unquote, which is tracing, you know, all the sets like there is, so, it is as close. It is even closer to the original series. And so I think it is a really effective at transferring that alchemy over Kristen and I talk about this all the time. Making TV is an alchemy. It's it's a lot of the reason yeah. why these revivals don't work is like it shows are of their time and a time and a place. And you get a 200 people together and you work them hard to make this one thing. And then it's like a pressure thing. And then it's a release. And when you try to recreate that most often, more often than not, you miss the magic. And again, as much as, as stilt as the animated series is, it still has more of the original series vibe so if you're into that definitely check it out it's a tough one for me because when i first started seeing it it felt i i was much harsher on it the first time that i saw it and i felt like it was almost like a bad parody of the original series because it's so condensed yeah because it's like this you know short it's less than a half hour and the dialogue is almost like how someone who'd only seen sometimes it felt like someone who'd only seen star trek a few times had the archetypes and wrote stuff for it. But now that I look at it, I think with some distance and understanding maybe the challenges of doing it, I feel like there are, there are so many good elements mixed in there with it's, the, it's still not as good. It's just not. <laughs> oh no, I wouldn't say it's, it's as good, but it's, it's like the dialogue in particular, I think is a weakness. And That's then interesting. The, we'll get into that. <laughs> and then, of course, just the limitations of the way they did animation back then, which is like having to reuse shots, having to use shots where they didn't draw the whole thing and there's a piece missing, yeah. stuff like that. I guess I can boil it down to this. If we're talking about what embodies the spirit of the original series and people can throw out all these examples like this captures the spirit or whatever. The animated series does capture the spirit of the original series. Yes, yes. So that's that's kind of my bigger point. Uh, yes, you do have to kind of work your way through. Think about it like an abandoned house. You have to work through the weeds to get to that beautiful <laughs> backyard. But you'll find it. You just have to kind of get through some right. stuff that's annoying. And then the last point I wanted to mention, we've Chris and I have just you know stood and applaud, applauded, even though you can't see us, that Ethan Peck being a real one, a labor guy out on the picket lines all the time. He's awesome. I know the other Trek cast members are too, but uh, Ethan Peck, we really like him, especially on Strange New Worlds. You know what? He's uh, he's closer to Leonard Nimoy than I think Zachary Quinto. Yes. Yeah. Leonard Nimoy almost didn't do the animated series when he looked around at the first day of recording and he was like, wait, where's where's George? Where is everybody? Where's Michelle? <laughs> And so yeah. because Leonard Nimoy was so powerful, even during the original series, he was able to get Ohura and Sulu on the show with their voices. They were always going to be characters. But what? Uh, James Dewan was going to do their voices, too. Is and Majel Barrett. They and I mean, Barrett. they did all the other voices pretty much. So <laughs> that's the other thing. Like James Dewan. I mean, the, get the book. You can read all the things. But yes, James Dewan doing an, an inordinate number of voices and Majel Barrett. The, the two of them having such distinct voices. 
was tough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he comes, he came from the early days of radio. So he knew about doing like different voices and different accents and all that stuff. But still, it's just so obviously yeah. him all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's even doing Mr. Kyle. I'm like, are you doing Mr. Kyle though? Yeah. I'm <laughs> Let's talk about Beyond the Farthest Star, written by Samuel A. Peoples, directed by Hal Sutherland. It debuted on NBC Saturday morning, September 8th, 1973. Uh, the first episode of season one, Memory Alpha describes it. The Enterprise finds a deserted starship orbiting a dead star. What Memory Alpha does not mention is that the deserted starship is 300 million years old and its original crew left because the ship had been infected by a malevolent magnetic being that just wanted to promulgate across the universe. Uh, the, Enterprises give, the Enterprise's arrival gives this alien the chance to finally escape and hijacks the Enterprise. Can our crew stop it? Of course they can. <laughs> Do you have any uh, trivia that you think we should uh, talk about before we get into the grades? Well, we should talk about Samuel A. Peoples, yes. who you know wrote Where No Man Has Gone Before for the original yep. series. So it's kind of like he's the he's almost your pilot guy. Yeah. Um, he contributed to the Wrath of Khan, although he didn't get credit for it. He came but up he with was Savick. also. Hmm. Sorry. He came up with the name Savick. That oh, was the one go. thing that survived his script. <laughs> <laughs> um, and even at the, at the very beginning of Star Trek, he was consulting with Gene Roddenberry. He's the one, I think, who made a list of science fiction writers that Gene should talk to about doing the show. So he was the right guy to go to for this one. Absolutely. He also was the one who coined the term wagon train to the stars. Yep. Although Gene Roddenberry said it was his, but yeah. he did that a lot. Uh, he passed away in Santa Rosa, which is from my neck of the woods. So that's that's why I'm like I, that and where no man has gone before is a dense but pretty impressive piece of television writing, especially for a pilot. It was our first TMK. And uh, so for two reasons, it sticks in my mind, but um, very important figure in Star Trek. There will be another important figure we'll talk about later on. The other thing I want to point out is this episode didn't run in L.A. until December 1973 because George Takei was running for L.A. City Council and his opponents were able to, to dispute his voice acting as like an equal time issue. Yeah, so that, was, that was funny. <laughs> I mean, you can't happen. do that now. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> what? I wish. Can yeah. <laughs> it would be like you couldn't get on a show too bad. <laughs> like that's. How, yeah. yeah. So let's get into it. So instead of great scenes, we just, for the animated, we say great moments. Now those could be full scenes, but just any great moments that you want to toss out there. Well, I have a very silly favorite moment. I don't know if it's great. I have two moments, but one <laughs> of them, <laughs> there's when, when they beam back from the ship and the alien has come back with them, Kirk runs over and he knocks Kyle over. Oh, that was great. He pushes him out of the way to beam it out. Like only I can do this. And I was like, well, I don't. That to me was my first like, wow, what a moment. <laughs> you know, there should be a, a cut, maybe not a super cut of of Shatner shoving actors out of the way. Because <laughs> we had just watched Cat's Pod not too long ago. And when Scotty's a zombie pointing a phaser at him and he gets the jump and he grabs it from Scotty, he shoves James Dewan very hard, <laughs> like in a way that's almost personal. And the and remember in Star Trek 2 when he's rushing down to see uh, Spock in the, in the chamber and he like brushes past that engineer that's just standing there. There is like Shatner. And so I like that they maybe like copy that in some way that, in that that's great. I like it. It's I, almost like that scene in uh 
airplane where he's running through the airport that's right, and that's starts right. pushing people and then ends up beating the crap out of them. I'm important. Yes, yes. My other great moment actually comes right before that, which is just when they beam in and then and Kyle, with in Scotty's voice, says something beamed aboard with you and they look and there's just this big green blobby thing. Yeah, it's just a big <laughs> fart on the transporter pad with them. I mean, it really is like a green stink line that's just floating there. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I had a, a lot of great moments. Well, three, six, seven, but I'll run through them quick. Uh, when they first come across the ship and they're kind of in awe of it and Spock's giving his analysis, it sounded like the series. It kind of actually even sounded like the motion picture. I know it's just jargony stuff, but it I think it's the way Leonard Nimoy delivers jargon when he's giving an analysis. Like this ship has unknown alloy, harder and lighter than any registered metal. Is not a recorded galactic starship design. It just sounded like an episode. And I love Ohura. Listen, I love Ohura. So anytime she gets a moment that's not hailing frequencies open, I'm like, what's she saying? It's going to be great. And she's just saying what kind of people could have built it to touch even a starship with such grace and beauty. I mean, I just like them being in awe of the ship, the voice actors trying to sell basically a drawing. Um, and I thought that that was cool. I liked, I liked when they first beam aboard with the life support belts. It turns out I I thought I think the life support belts are a great idea. I think they're great. I wish they had brought it back for even it would make the most sense in discovery now that they're in the 32nd century to just have the belts. I mean, there's already so much magic tech going on in there. The fact that they put Michael Burnham in a in a Iron Man suit. I'm like, why? Just put her in the belt. In the belt. I mean, so obviously they did the belts because it saved them money because drawing the EV suits would right. have actually cost more but then they just do this like glowy outline oh, it's awesome them and I you're mean, like now they're safe which yep. is <laughs> just go it's a saturday morning cartoon we got 22 minutes just go with it but like right. uh when una and and on go out on the hole to sign the scorch put on the we didn't need to do the whole force field bit that didn't make any sense put on the belts yeah. I mean, the show is so they think the shows, the new shows think they're so clever when they pull from like obscure canon sometimes or like follow certain other canonical lines. It's weird that they've ditched the one that saves them actual money. <laughs> yeah, I think it might be hard to do and make it look convincing. You put the belt on one time, you make the belt look distinct enough, you put it on, you show the force field. They were able to do the personal force field in The Next Generation. Remember when Worf made his communicator a, a bullet shield in uh, Fistful <laughs> of Datas? They were able to sell it there. So you could have sell it. It's not that. Old. Anyway, the belts are great. The, I think the belt, I'm, I'm in love with the belts. You're like, we got to make an animated show. How do we distinguish it? That's a great way. Yeah. I like the danger message from the 300 million year old crew as as basically just sort of how it's a trippy 70s sequence with the <laughs> and the strobing lights and then the music. I just thought it was a, a cool like we are definitely in the 70s cartoon. And I like that they didn't re they didn't say, oh, what a weird looking creature. They just accepted it. That's yes. the creature. That was very Star Trek. -y. I liked it. Also great writing to set up that it was a spider-like creature by examining what this ship, how it was made. Like it's very in insect-like. And so like it was just building to that. And so it's it was a payoff to that setup. 
because uh, Sam Peoples is a great writer, it turns out. Uh, so, uh, Scott, I like Scotty being crushed by the engineering lid. I thought it was just, like, I, I just thought it looked funny and I liked the, that the environmental shield, we could, I don't know why he was still wearing the belt, but he was and it saved him from being crushed. Because the life support had gone out in all these oh, different right. areas. So they had everybody put on the belt. I like that he's, his voice sounded strained when he yes. was trapped. I like the obey me scene when the entity takes over the ship finally. Obey me! <laughs> <laughs> oh baby bad seven or just like 70s voice acting it's it oh. it all sounds silly and and I for, I for whatever reason i was in the mood also just aliens ordering around our star trek characters is a good trope and yep. this the fact that this one is a cartoony version of that oh baby that's all they're basically saying anyway so <laughs> uh and then I liked Spock's line. It has become the Enterprise and we are only life support organisms in its body. I just like when Star Trek goes really high concept. I'm like, okay, so the ship is now controlled by this thing. And then I like the moment where they'd have to animate Kirk whispering to Spock. He goes, <laughs> the slingshot effect, because they're trying to escape uh, this planet, this dead star slingshot effect to yank us out of orbit can you compute it in your mind so i liked it because it's it's a whisper and then yes (laughs) in your mind can you do that Uh, i could see that scene a lot of these scenes i could imagine happening in the live action version which maybe we'll talk about later but like uh i just thought it was funny having to animate him whispering leaning in to spock and then i think the ending is a great moment because the very first time i saw this episode even though this is a clearly a malevolent being that's intent on controlling and killing, it was such a Star Trek thing. And also who wants to hear anyone crowd in pain like this? Don't leave me. I know Please. the poor thing. So, lonely. <laughs> uh, so I thought those were all the great moments. And I did think back to Uhura for one second. I mean, that line I actually had is one of my favorite lines. Her, her yeah. line about how beautiful it is, the grace. Yeah. But also they gave her some good technical dialogue at the beginning too, where she's actually giving concrete and specific information, which was rare. They didn't usually, she didn't get to do that on the original series. Also, another reason why people should like the animated series is Uhura commands the ship twice. She does. And every time I think about just Uhura, I'm like, why wasn't she on the mission in Star Trek 3? It just makes me more and more upset as time goes by. Yep. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> if there's anyone who cared about Spock the most, it's she's probably tied with Kirk. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, best Trek tropes. Well, the misunderstood antagonist. Yeah. Because he's yeah. just lonely. How about having <laughs> Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Scotty all leave <laughs> ship together oh, and yeah. theme down? Like why they brought McCoy after they decided there was nobody on the ship? I don't know, but then let's just bring the four most senior people that we have. <laughs> yep. Yep. I also threw in, uh, it's almost Kirk Fu when he does a somersault. Like he oh, puts Lori. the belt on the thing and then he does this great flip. I almost put that as a great moment because, but I couldn't understand quite what was going on. Even to this day, I've watched the episode like six times. <laughs> like, what so, did he do? <laughs> so there's this bridge defense system. And the alien has hijacked that, so convenient. But they needed a way to make the alien a threat because it's just a fart cloud. And so it's shooting at them and they've got their belts on. So then the the entity tells him to do something on the console and he does, but then he quickly like puts the environmental belt on it to damage it and then make it unrepairable. Is that what's going on? I think so. 
Okay. So, and then he does roll out of the way. It's, it's, oh, you're, that's so great. <laughs> Cause it, the, what this episode, what the animated series does tell you is like William Shatner as Kirk, he is a man of action. So he's constantly moving. He actually doesn't have as much dialogue or as dense dialogue as the other characters. Cause he's right. like listening and then coming up with the solution. It was just harder to convey in a cartoon uh, or sorry, animated. <laughs> so, uh, I had Spock gives the probability of something in this case. Yes. 99. He's 0.997 certain that the derelict ship is ship is dead. I also sub trope of being kind of cocky about it because Kirk's like, are you sure? He's like, I'm very sure. Yeah. <laughs> 0.997 certainty. So I, I think the, the whisper moment is maybe a moment of this, but I think the, the moment where Spock is being shot at and like his life belt is his shield is failing. And, and he's like, no captain. And Kirk's like, stop. That's a Spurk moment. Yes. <laughs> yes. There, the two of them, there's too much love in that, in that whole exchange. There's a lot of love between those two that comes yes. up in both of the episodes we're going to talk about. And it bleeds, <laughs> it bleeds through the animation. They could not draw it away if they wanted to. <laughs> well, I mean, it is one of the beautiful things about Star Trek. It's just Absolutely. that they love each other so much. Yes. So. The, the whisper moment, I feel like, is only possible if they have a deep affection for each other. Yes. <laughs> uh kirk negotiating with the computer yes he's like I'll, I'll do what you say but after you repair the life support systems first um and then obviously kirk bluffing i, I don't know which one should be the bluff where he's like trying to say uh, well one's a lie where he's like spock needs to go help scotty to fix this thing to do what you want which right is not true but the bluff is we're gonna drive the ship into the dead star and that's what compels the alien to finally leave the ship. But was that a bluff? It seems like they were intent on, no, we've got to destroy the ship. Yeah, which is almost like a, it is a trope in itself. Like, we'll just yes. destroy the ship as your backup yep. plan. Yeah. So, but yeah, I had that too, that he sort of tricks a being to think he's going to destroy it, but he would destroy it if he had to. We don't really know. And then, of course, everything's fine. <laughs> uh, any and more Best I strokes? did have maniacal laughter coming from the ship's speakers. Oh, that was great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Uh, then that's right. Usually whenever someone gets hold of the ship's intercom, there's going to be a laugh of some kind. Yes. It's so good. Uh, although I don't remember now, did Vatic do a laugh over the speakers? I don't remember now. Oh, probably. It defies uh, reason that she wouldn't, but right. now She's I can't there. clearly picture it. Yeah. She was my twirling she was That's talking right. to the whole ship she was right there i always think of uh mr hengist jack the ripper doing his crazy laughter through the ship that's it yep uh so then the last one i have is we usually put like Kristen likes to do red alerts i like to do captain's log in this case captain's log start at 5221.8 final entry resuming outward course beyond the farthest star of our galaxy mission star charting I would have reorganized that sentence so it ended a, on a more, um, I don't know, artistic flourish. Like you should have maybe <laughs> ended on our, our, you know, setting a course beyond the farthest star. Like that would have been a good one. But I like that they were just like mission, star charting. Dun, 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 dun. I know. The <laughs> well, so the music is sort of also a trope because they use the music to just let you know how dramatic things are. That's true. 
you know, the, the music's awesome. I just, for me, I love it so much. It's, it's Same. a very specific mood. One more good best one oh, that I, okay. because, you know, normally you have your back and forth shaky ship, but yep. they've sort of the animated series version of that is a still shot and the camera shakes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the animation has not helped at all by being upscaled or being, you know, the high res. You can see no. just that they're dragging, literally dragging an animation cell across another one. I can't believe it. It's just, yeah. <laughs> uh, worst Trek tropes. Uh, let's, oh, I have a few. I have, yeah. well, here's a weird, <laughs> this is, this, I may be the only person who has been bothered by this for many years. But <laughs> there's a Star Trek thing where it's like, ready this or stand by this. And I always think, well, aren't they always ready and standing by? So there's this great thing at the beginning where Kirk says, stand by to reverse course. And Sula goes, standing by, sir. And then Kirk goes, reverse course. <laughs> yes. Like, there's that a lot a of good... prep. Lori, I'm with you. Uh, the, the, the high point of that being an issue is Star Trek 3. In Star Trek three, they say stand by and then the thing happens. And I'm like, wait, he said stand by. So why is it happening? And then I between you saying that for this one and knowing that Roddenberry was like very specific on military, I'm like, is that a military thing? But when isn't stand by like get ready? And I know what you're saying. Like, why is he telling them to get ready to do something? Wouldn't he just order them to do it? And I don't know. <laughs> and aren't they always ready to do something? Yes, exactly. Like, Sulu's sitting there. He can reverse. He can go forward. He can go right, left, whatever you want. He'll do it. So I always. Also, I, in that case, stand by to reverse course. I'm like, what else is he going to do? The The situation is, is that they're hurtling towards a gravity well. <laughs> That's the only play. What's the standby? You have to prepare the engines. I'm left with like, it's just filler dialogue. <laughs> to just fill out page length i guess but. yes yeah and to make us feel like there's some kind of procedure that's true which i appreciate in the form of spock's jargon and everyone reporting um but yes i think that's just another version of that i didn't have any worse trek tropes so keep going i also have um spock counting and he starts at 93 seconds <laughs> And then 50 seconds, bleed off in eight seconds. Yes. Yeah. But he just keeps doing it. And I'm like, that's, yeah. that's a really good one. Um, and then, yeah, like a, like a lonely alien that nobody helps. <laughs> like at the end, he's so lonely and they just don't, they're like, bye. Yeah. We're, sorry. We're only doing half hour episodes. We don't have time to understand you. Bye. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. Well, that entity didn't seem to be interested in anything other than procreating. But they've encountered many aliens before who were only doing bad things. And then they go, well, or we could give you this place to live or whatever. And they, oh, that would be nice. Right. So, But they didn't even try it this time. So I didn't have any worse Trek tropes. And I had a thought because I was like, is it because there's just no time for them to get into some of their bad habits? And you've laid out three that I just kind of like, okay, whatever, ignore, but. You did the show better than I did just now. So <laughs> well, there's there's one other, but this very hard. <laughs> the last one would fit more into of its time, um, mm -hmm. which is that all of the extras are all white dudes. <laughs> like there's no other women and no people of color. It's just a whole bunch of white dudes. Well, we got Eric's. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Mr. Eric's. <laughs> He's there. 
he is <laughs> he is there yes <laughs> but like all the engineering guys and all you know it's all just a whole bunch of white dudes super generic white dudes too okay yes very exchangeable <laughs> yes uh, as though they came were ported in from other filmation shows <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> now it's time for the line must be drawn here great lines please go first well, my first one was the Uhura one you mentioned, which I thought was beautiful um, and very, very true to her character that she yes. would notice the grace and beauty of a ship. Um, and then there was this great little exchange where McCoy is like, gives me the creeps. I feel like something's watching us. And Scott says, I feel it too, Captain. And then Spock says, a physiological symptom of latent primal superstition, the fear of primitive people confronting something unknown to them. And then if that wasn't enough for a great line, you have Kirk throwing in, compared to the beings that built the ship, we are primitive people, even you, Mr. Spock. <laughs> Those are both my great lines, too. <laughs> that's, that's great. Yeah, it's great. That's that's awesome. Uh, I had to mute it because I was laughing. I couldn't believe it. You're like, yes, I had two, and those were both of them. <laughs> well, I have one more from the buggy, spidery alien. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you understand this message you are protected only for this moment in this room so. okay let's talk about that for a second because <laughs> on my final rewatch i really i was only listening to it and i was like wait a minute so they destroyed their own ship to like strand this alien here then they left behind a warning message and then in that room was going to be destroyed once the message played so yes. I don't, why didn't they just destroy the ship? <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, the fact that they left the ship intact made no sense. Yeah, uh, that was funny. Okay, here's a new grade. Now it's time for the line must be drawn there. <laughs> Great art. <laughs> so I really do want to take, because it is animation and, and in the live action we talk about of its time and, you know, shows are the result of how they're made, what they can buy at stores, what they can make on hand, you know what I mean? Like what they can recycle. And this is art. This is hand-drawn in this case. This is, this is sweat equity. This is real human artwork. So any shots you wanted to point out that you thought were particularly nice or just interesting or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I have some that I've said they're great because they're great and some are great because they're terrible. So... <laughs> Wonderful, wonderful. But the one thing I just love throughout the whole series is the way the Enterprise looks. The exterior shots of the Enterprise, I think, are beautiful. Mm -hmm. I don't like oh. the I don't like the when it's orbiting the planet, the 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 chunky turn. That's clunky. <laughs> Not a fan of that. But yes, I, I generally yes, I'm I'm with you. <laughs> And every time they did like a super wide shot where the little tiny, they're usually just shadows. They don't fill in the detail. And you see like the whole ship and it's all 70s and weird. And then these tiny little figures. I thought those were very beautiful. Yes. The the big landscapes where the crew are just silhouetted against them. Yeah. That, that's the one I had for sure when they're just standing on like the arm of the ship looking out. And it's like, yeah, that was that was great. I thought that was really pretty. And then my, I have a couple of silly ones, which are the <laughs> that overhead shot of the bridge where Uhura <laughs> looks like she's lying down and everybody else is like at their stations and Uhura's like sprawled out in her chair looking across the bridge to somewhere else. And I don't know why. Okay, so then if you notice on the far right side, it's either Scotty or a random, you know, supernumerary. He's like to the side as well. And I think that's like a pre, that's a stock shot of like when the ship is shaking or under attack. 
So that's yes. why they're all kind of lurched to the side. And it's funny that Ohura is like, but you know what? Ohura is, Nichelle Nichols has done some many uh, dramatic flings across the bridge of the Enterprise in the original yes. series. So like that, she always stretches it. Well, yeah, she's sorry. a da- she was a dancer, yes, she so she knew her. how to do it with a certain <laughs> grace. And she also, if you want, in, in the original series, she always sits in a way that you can see her legs because she had amazing legs. Yeah. So she often sits almost like with her chair to the side. But there is something she does look like she's lying down. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's the famous shot, which you can read about in the book, which is <laughs> Scotty's legs are missing in one of the shots. <laughs> yeah, you read about it a little bit more. And the there's six layers of animation cells that they could record at any one time. And what does that mean, folks? Well, literally, you take a strip of film and you put five more strips of film on top of that you bound them together and you run it underneath a camera like almost like a like you would run a plate under a microscope you run it through and that's that's how you make animation in that time period and you could only do six before it like got too blurry and messed with the lens and all that stuff so sometimes what they made the choice to just be like not we can't do the legs We can't do the the mouth. Like that's literally, it's like, it's too many cells and it it will mess things up. So that was, that's funny. That, that whole scene with the lid on him, like how, how did he fall into that? How did the lid slam onto him? (laughs) Like it's, it's a funny moment in there, but uh, what part of this will they teach at Starfleet Academy? Do you think? Um, I, well, I think they'll teach everybody how to protect just the navigation console. (laughs) <laughs> slap that environmental belt on <laughs> yeah that was but like the idea of of protecting this very concentrated area you know there was a strange new worlds episode with that i complained about the tech and now i'm like i probably shouldn't have complained where spock and chapel are in the shuttlecraft and he has arranged it so that only her side of it is shielded mm-hmm. and i was like that doesn't make any sense and then i'm like oh it goes all the way back to the 70s like that you can sort of shield or protect a very specific area like physical small physical area that's a good one you got you power power allocation too you got to decide what can we what's the most vital thing to protect here right uh i guess i have two it's possible to manufacture technology that can survive 300 million years probably whatever readings that they were taking because that was one of the things that kirk said when they beamed down like full readings everything's being scanned here so oh, I'm yeah. sure they're going to study that alien tech. But also, I have to imagine at this point, based on his logs, maybe they've uh, done some debriefings on when he's been on shore leave or after his five-year mission ended. How to outsmart a, a, a smart computer. Yes. I, I got to think Captain Kirk's strategies have been incorporated in some way. They've been wildly successful. <laughs> That's right. Very high batting average (laughs) strategies. You got a computer that's a problem. He can talk it into doing all kinds of stuff. So, and he can trick it. All right. Trek, marry, or kill beyond the farthest star. I'll trek it. It's fine. Yeah. I I put it barely a trek. I mean, if you get through the the clunky animation into the story, the story's fine. And then there's a lot of the moments you highlighted were more silly than, than great. But abstractly it's a solid episode of star trek yeah it's a it's a pretty classic star trek story it just lacks the subtlety that you would usually get where like they would have somebody would have compassion for the poor lonely creature 
and yeah. stuff like that. So, or they or someone would argue to save, try and save parts of that big crazy purple psychedelic ship or something like that. That would have been been a cool sub story. Is that that's like they would have had some like ship's historian or researcher or some person come in like Captain, we can't. You know, it would have yes. been like exactly right. Captain, I'm getting some sort of subspace radio signal. Put it on ship speaker. Saturday night, 6.30, 5.30 Central, and Sunday morning, 11.30, 10.30 Central, Earth time. What in the name of sanity is going on? I am experiencing audio-visual suggestion, Captain. So am I. It seems to be calling us. Star Trek, Saturday nights at 6.30, 5.30 Central, and Sunday mornings at 11.30, 10.30 Central, Earth time on Nickelodeon. Sensors indicate a huge whirling belt of alien matter approaching the Enterprise at warp six. Red alert, repeat, red alert. Activate view screen, Mr. Sulu. What you're looking at, Captain, is the Romvian pollution belt formed hundreds of years ago. Wasn't it before people became aware of pollution and began pointing it out? Exactly. Once enough people started pointing out pollution, the pollution stopped. Yes, Mr. Spock. People finally got the coin. <laughs> Lori, did you have a dog growing up? Uh, yes. Did you ever have to put it down? Yes. So, does yesteryear, the next episode we're going to talk about, resonate at all? <laughs> I mean, I didn't have to decide. Ah, <laughs> I see. Because I was a child. I've had, to, I've had to make that call as an adult. Yeah. But, and I never saw this as a kid. Like, I wonder what it's like to watch this when you're a kid and that it's a pretty heavy issue for a small child. Yesteryear was written by D.C. Fontana, directed by Hal Sutherland. It first aired on NBC Saturday, September 15th, 1973, episode two of season one. Memory Alpha describes it. Spock travels back in time to prevent his death as a young Vulcan. What Memory Alpha does not mention is that there are some shenanigans with the Guardian of Forever, which they can't call the Guardian of Forever, because Harlan Ellison would have drop kicked their asses. So they, <laughs> so they didn't do that. I think this episode could just be like Spock's dog dies. <laughs> it's what the episode. <laughs> That's the simple line. And that might keep people out of it. But really, I really think this is one of the most important episodes of Star Trek ever made. <laughs> well, it set the stage for so much that came afterwards, like a lot of stuff about Vulcan and about Spock's childhood. All came from, I mean, it's DC Fontana wrote it. So it all came from this episode. So DC Fontana, I didn't know this until doing any research, was Sam Peoples' secretary at one point, originally, way yes. back when. So here's a connection. Uh, and she agreed to come on board the animated series on the condition that she be the associate producer, which basically means the head writer. Uh, in animation today, that title is usually story editor. Sometimes it's head writer, and and yes, because of how animation is, it, it's not like live action where head writer and showrunner are usually synonymous. There's like a very big, sometimes it happens, but usually it's very hard for a writer to be a showrunner of an animated show. There, there's just too much in the production pipeline that a lot of writers don't know. And so there's like, there are some that do know both sides of the process, but it's usually just a little more or a siloed or they work together very closely. But anyway, and don't you sort of picture her like that she did the whole thing from some small office 
I making do. a lot of phone calls. Yes. Like I don't, I don't imagine a whole bunch like buzzing around. Like a, I just feel like it was her in an office, and she'd get scripts and talk to writers, and then the filmation guys would do their thing. And but I never, I don't picture like big meetings and no. stuff like that. And uh, and I think even in the book it talks about how like she didn't have any input in the animation process because of how filmation was set up. Uh, the how Sutherland was colorblind. <laughs> yeah, there's this thing that goes back and forth all the time. Was he colorblind? Wasn't he colorblind? Maybe he just liked pink. There's like a whole lot of conversation. So because there was a writer strike going on in 1973, uh, DC Fontana was able to put together an all-star team for the writer's room. She was able to bring back all the original writer or a lot of the big name original writers, save one, Gene Kuhn, who didn't think it was worth the effort for $1,300, which is the cost of a half hour animation script in 1973, $1,300 has the same, had the same buying power as $8,852 and 34 cents today does. Lori adjusted for inflation. Do you think the script fee for a half hour animated script is higher or lower? I mean, obviously more than $1,300, but Adjusted, you know, is it higher, lower, or the same as eighty-eight fifty-two thirty-four? Oh, that's a good question because I don't know what writers get paid in animation. I I would like to assume it's higher, but I'm afraid it's not. <laughs> so, if you were to write a half-hour episode of a show, that's there's two phases: story and outline, and then you would get then you would get a script fee. But like taken together. $9,942.85, essentially the same as oh. what it would have been 50 years ago. So <laughs> it is why the animation guilds, it's, it's tough. It's a tough. Yeah. Beat. Yeah. I mean, I would do it, you... <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, I would do it until, you know, I'd done a few and then I would be like, now I need some more money, please. <laughs> And I'm sure if you're a striking writer and, you know, difference between today's strike or this year's strike and previous strike was, you know, this time around, they were like, please don't go and write animation. Like, we need to make it clear that they really need us. And the last and you know, in 73, it was not an issue. So it was like a it was like a fill in time until the strike resolved. It, it made some sense. And it's also a. Uh, sorry, it's a separate union too now yes. in modern times. So if you were already working on an animated series, you didn't have to stop. Sure, but even there have been writers that work in both, and uh, the yes. Writers Guild for the 2023 one were asking the ones in both, especially, not to go and do their animation work, which is was tough in its own way because that's sometimes what people were doing to pay the bills until mm -hmm. the WGA work came in. Anyway, but. Yep. Uh, DC Fontana was in the Writers Guild, obviously, uh, but she was also in on the uh, the board between 88 and, eight and 90. In between 91 and 93, she's, you know, won a bunch of awards. And I'm not going to say she's unheralded or an underrated figure. I actually just feel like there should be a bust of her, just like there was of Gene Roddenberry or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, DC Fontana is such an integral figure for Star Trek. Like, between this episode and, I think, Vulcan's Glory... Like every new person to come to Star Trek has just stripped huge elements of her work. Uh, it's been the model for so many things. I think she was the person that got, I mean, she is Spock. Let's yeah. also back out there that no one has written Spock better 
I mean, people have written good Spock for sure, but she understood the character. She created the world. She, I think Spock was his most interesting when she was writing Spock stuff. Um, this side of paradise, I get mad at older Star Trek fans for not telling me about it sooner. It, <laughs> Because for me, it's like, why wasn't that in the top 10 of the Viewer's Choice Marathon in 91? I thought you were all the experts. That's like, it's like an amazing, <laughs> it's an amazing episode of Star Trek. And, and I don't think people say it's a bad one, but it's like, this is so good. It's like such everything you want. It has expect everything. The characters. Everything. Yeah, everything. everything. It is, it's like so good. McCoy yeah. is great in it. And the Kirk and Spock stuff is great. And the Spock yeah. stuff. And the, the, yeah. the concept itself and and trying to figure out what's the right answer in that situation, plus just yeah. the shooting spores. So yes, good. exactly. <laughs> so good. But uh, I guess I'm, I I had a chance to meet DC Fontana and I didn't take it. And I've always oh. kicked myself. It was in, I think it was 2016 and it was at the the Egyptian and they were showing the motion picture, an old print of it. It was such a bad print of it. <laughs> it was such a bad print. It was like embarrassing, like, how could they show it? And then like a year later at Tarantino's theater, they showed he had a print of it and it was a great print. I'm like, wait, why couldn't they give this print for the, anyway, all that said, she was there and she was talking and the Akutas were there. And I've, I am a big believer in just leave celebrities alone. And for me, DC Fontana is a huge celebrity, but at the same time, it's like, there's no Star Trek. She's one of the, like the few people were like, there's no Star Trek without her. So. Um, and also like writers and behind the scenes people they experience something i think very unique in star trek which is that we consider them celebrities yes and they're not used to being celebrities and i do think she would have i mean i she was one of the people i really wanted to meet i'm so sad that i'll never get that chance but she's someone you should go up to <laughs> like <laughs> you fool basically is what i'm telling you the only <laughs> time i've ever crossed the line to do that was jane espenson who was a writer oh, yeah. of Buffy the vampires Slayer, uh, but she was, um, I was taking a class and she was a speaker at the class. So it was like after the class, I'm like, okay, this is the only situation where it's like, <laughs> it's, it's expected to, to at least say thanks for the talk, you know, that kind of thing. But that yeah. was basically the only time, but, uh, I'm no different from most Star Trek fans. I see someone from Star Trek and I get very excited. And so. Yes. And I try to find the right, I was on the picket lines in New York when they did the Star Trek thing and I saw, um, Michael Emerson from mm -hmm. lost sure and what i ask because you know you're you're picketing so you pass the person a whole bunch of times because you're going in sort of this big oval shape so i just kind of like caught his eye and gave him a thumbs up which <laughs> yeah. was like i know who you are i'm excited you're here and i'm not gonna bother you but i did go right up to ethan peck eventually because my friend was like you have to and she kind of like dragged me over to talk to melissa navia and ethan peck so I saw Ethan Peck at a separate picket event and people were too many people were going up to him. I'm like, he's so cool. I'm just going to leave him alone. But yeah, uh, but but I guess the other thing was like, it's just I think they're they expect it sometimes and sometimes they don't. But then also I just go like, am I going to make this weird? And I just assume I will most of the time. So that's why well, and also like if they're having dinner, don't go up to them. Like yes, if someone's sitting absolutely. in a restaurant, yeah. I think that's a leave them alone scenario and it's yeah. different when you're at an event where people are doing that it's a whole other ball game you know i hadn't seen yesteryear since that dvd so i wonder if i like had watched yesteryear like the week before i saw her if i would have been compelled to really go up to her because wow i gotta say rewatching it for this episode i was really touched by it not 
just because of the dog dying. Um, you know, I've had dogs that have died, you know, when I was younger and very sad and I love dogs and I don't have one now because I'm trying to stay out of codependent relationships and any sound of dog, <laughs> if a dog wants me to go play, we're playing. Wants to go and walk, going on. I can't do that. Got other responsibilities, but I just think it's a, this was a really fantastic episode of Star Trek. I'm tipping my hand, but should we get into the grades? <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I think one thing that is especially interesting is that for a long time, this was the only episode considered canon. There was always this debate. Is the animated series canon or isn't it? And Gene Roddenberry and the Akutas were like, only this one. Hmm. Because so much of it, the city where Spock's from, uh, the the desert, you know, there's there's all these elements that just get recycled in other Star Treks or served as the basis, I guess, inspiration for for what they did after after this animated series. So I agree. Um, I mean, it's hard. It's just hard to ignore. It's an undeniable episode when you watch it. So but the first great moment I had was the briefing room scene where they figure out what the heck's going on. Kirk and Spock. I mean, the setup's weird. Kirk and Spock are just like off to go check out something through the Guardian of Forever just for fun. And then while while the Starfleet historians are studying something else and then because Kirk and Spock are gone, Spock is not there to go back in Vulcan history to save himself as he originally did. And so because of that, when they Kirk and Spock return, they're on, you know, a romantic getaway. Well, they there was a third guy with them. Oh, great. Okay. And so they, <laughs> all I see is Kirk and Spock. They get back, <laughs> they get back and um, and everyone, no one knows who Spock is. So that's kind of the setup there. So, and when they get back on the ship, they're basically, they got like the Starfleet records of Sarek and they found out that Sarek and Amanda Grayson, who for the, we get her last name for the first time, they divorced after Spock died when he was a child. And then Amanda died for good measure because the mom always has to die. I know Amanda always has to die. That's true. <laughs> uh, but I, I thought that was a great moment. I have a few. So I have one. I thought that when they first come out of the Guardian, I they did a really great job of establishing what was going on immediately just by having McCoy say, you know, who's he, Jim? And he's mm-hmm. like, you know him. And he goes, Fred, I don't, Jim. And I feel like it just gets us. We're there. We know exactly what's going on very quickly. Yeah. So I thought that was really a good moment. I thought the Andorian first officer wishing Spock good luck was a really nice moment, given that he knows that means he won't be on the ship anymore. That's right. Thalen. Thalen has a really good moment. And I think, and we'll get into this more with great lines, but just Spock explaining how to deal with death. Yes. Um, I mean, Kirk shakes Spock's hand before he jumps back into the Guardian to go back in time, like as a good luck and all that. I thought that was that was at the end of the Thalen moment. Weird that Thalen hasn't come up. Has he come up in any canonical stuff since? You know what? I feel like someone needs to remind Mike McMahon that Thalen exists. That's right. <laughs> I love Spock returning home. <laughs> <laughs> And that he sees himself being bullied. Emotional Earther. Aww. You're a Terran, Spock. <laughs> they didn't know how to say Terran. It's great. Uh, but the bullies, I mean, and then the fact that Spock tries to fight them and loses. I think that was better than the maniac in Star Trek 09. I really think it, it established Spock's isolation in a way that was more touching, more wholesome. 
and and this one in 09 i'm always like yes that was good that spock was being bullied it's the exact same scene except spock beats the shit out of all except of them. they're wearing yeah. clothes yeah they're wearing clothes <laughs> That's close. I mean, listen, the the kid's not wearing clothes in this one. I don't know. Was that a seventies thing? I'm not sure. I don't, but they had like sashes, belts, underpants, and boots. <laughs> they were wearing Sean Connery's get up in Zardoz. Yeah. They're all Zardoz out, and that leads to him going to his dog Aichaya and saying, "What if I'm not a true Vulcan like they say?" Uh, that I thought that was like a like you said, with setting up what's going on, who is this with Jim setting up the emotional stakes for a story is just as important. And I think that's a boy and his dog and him confessing to the dog. We can only just be there and be happy to see him. I thought that was nice. And then Aichaya and Spock fighting the Lamacha, the, the <laughs> dragon being in the desert. Um, I guess I should put as a great moment. Do you have this in here? He sees his dad, <laughs> old Spock uh, sees uh, Sarek. He's like, who are you? I'm your cousin. Yeah. Uh, and I'm passing through. I, I thought that was a nice moment. Mark Leonard. I, I wonder how much animation he ever did in his life. Voiceover acting. He was great. I mean, also he was... that he looked great. So oh, I, I was. I, that's coming up later. <laughs> For sure. Uh, I'm, I have like six more. So like, uh, please interject here. I don't no, to... do it. Do okay. it. Keep going. Uh, Achaya and Spock fighting this Lamacha. First of all, Achaya just running out of from off camera and just like bulldozing this dragon was great. And then Spock jumping on the uh, on it and giving it the Vulcan neck pinch. Yes, something they could only do in animation. That was that was fantastic. Even though again, there's an animation mistake where the head disappears. That was that was the segment in the book where it talks about six cells, baby. We had to yeah. make a choice. <laughs> Sorry, no time for the head. That's right. <laughs> uh, Spock counsels his younger self about his family, his mother, emotions, and how logic offers a serenity that humans seldom experience. There's a great line in this moment. I'm sure we'll both mention later on. But just, you know, Spock has an opportunity to talk to his younger self. And the conceit is that, oh, I've already done this before. This my, I remember my cousin saving me. Oh, I was my cousin. Okay, I'm doing this. Um, I don't know. I, I guess it was nice. It was a quaint moment that just reminds me, like, if it was done today, it would have been done differently and not necessarily better. So I just like the, the simple quaintness of just like, I'm going to give myself some advice. And it's not yeah. going to be too overwrought or whatever. Uh, so then as this talk's happening, Aichaya collapses. The Lamacha's poisonous talons got him. So then Spock, young Spock chooses to run and find an heal, run and find a healer and ask Spock to remain with Aichaya. I, you know, I just, I just like that. I thought it was a nice moment of decision. Car your character is making a decision, even in animation. It's important, drives the story. This is part of the emotional stakes this whole time, he's like, am I a Vulcan? Am I a human? Am I like a strong person? And here he is starting to assert himself. And I, in part because of the advice older Spock just gave him. Uh, and then I really like the moment where Spock talks to his dying dog, who wouldn't like one more opportunity to talk to an old friend. So I thought that was very sweet. And then um, <laughs> I put this in as a great moment, but maybe it's more obnoxious to you, Lori. Spock tries to, con <laughs> young Spock tries to convince this hippie healer that he's not joking this is not a practical <laughs> joke my pet sea lot is dying in the desert 
And then he's like, has to be like, you are a Sarek's boy. You're a human. Is this a practical joke? He's like, no, I, that was two years ago. Two years ago when I was five. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I put a whoopee cushion <laughs> on one chair. Uh, <laughs> but then he has to say like, but I liked his little, again, DC Fontana is great. He's like, do you also, well, have you also heard that, you know, Spock is a liar? And he's like, no, I guess I have to come. And then I like that he has like a sports car. <laughs> yeah, they show up in this great yeah. vehicle yeah. Yeah. he's yeah. clearly a drug dealer that that was by. it's like he's decked out um, i mean part of the problem with me for me with some of these moments and this is sort of goes a little bit into the production of it so the kid who voiced spock his name was billy simpson he came in he auditioned read all the lines left they called him and said you got it and we're using your audition <laughs> and so for me every time he speaks he just sounds like someone who's reading one line in isolation and i never feel it it has a sixth grade play vibe to it oh when for he sure speaks. and that yeah. kind of ruins for me like or, or lessens the impact of some of those moments because he sounds like i am sad to have this happen like there's just this this insincerity to the kid because he was just auditioning and hearing the lines for the first time. Yeah. I think what reading the story in the book about it. And the only thing I'll borrow from that to tell the audience is I'm very unclear of how this kid was paid because that is very sketchy to record the audition and then use that not to say he wasn't paid, but like, you know, that this seems like if that was done today, that would be a very big issue. So it's like, that's part of the reason why I think actors are striking in part to get paid for auditions is so that certain aspects of that don't get, they don't get taken advantage of for there. But because of that, Ichaya is the dog's name instead of Ichaya. Right. Is, you know, it's just stuff like that. So uh, I, I agree with you. I think there was just a part of me like once again, once I could get through the weeds that have overgrown around the house, like what's, what's in here. Um, I, the fact that it's a child's voice at all coming out of young Spock, I think that's that was enough for me in those moments, but I'm with you. I see that. Uh, I almost I, wish they could go back, poor just little kid. Billy, but like <laughs> just have someone else do it and have yeah. someone who's doing the lines with somebody just to feel less, you know, here is a statement I am making versus yeah. like an actual interaction. And right. I also think, my God, how much could it have cost to bring the kid in for another hour? Well, I mean, it seems like the, every expense was spared. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So I still, you know, I like him choosing to euthanize Aichaya because he's only going to suffer. Um, yeah. Yeah. That got, that got a lot of calls into NBC. And surprisingly, it was for parents thanking them for putting something on for their kids to think about like to give them a, a perspective, a framework for understanding what's going on and uh, like a complicated issue. That to me is the best part of children's television, right? Where you can introduce something and that's what the Star Trek does best. We can introduce this really big human idea and situation. And by putting it, filtering it through aliens a little bit, you can kind of get enough remove so that it's not so overwhelming and you can think about it. I think that's what Prodigy is doing really well too. Is yeah. these deep emotional issues and decisions that have to be made and they put them in the right setting so that you can look at it in a different way. And then the last moment between Spock and Sarek, 
before Spock leaves after he's completed his mission and saved his own life. <laughs> because I like where Spock says to his dad, he got, Sarek says, I'm in your debt, whatever you want. And Spock says, uh, I just ask that you try to understand your son. And then Sarek says, a strange request, but I will honor it. <laughs> and I just thought it was a good moment because he couldn't violate the timeline, right? And it's like, what? And I think that was a very emotional line that Spock gave. Yes. Which for Spock is, you know, not usual, but this is a completely different version of Spock because of the circumstances. And I just, I thought it was sweet. I thought the whole episode had a lot of sweetness to it. And when you talk about an episode on Vulcan, sweetness is not something that would follow it. So, yeah. Uh, did I miss anything? No, I think you right. kind of, yeah. that was every beat of the story almost. Uh, best Trek tropes, time travel. <laughs> yes. We've got a combination here. We've got, we've got the guardian of forever, but also when Spock is giving his personal log, he says subjective time as the star date instead. I love that. Which was from tomorrow is yesterday. That was cool. Vulcan mysticism, I put. There's not a lot of mysticism here, although... He like, does is... say this weird thing about Vulcan gods, and I'm like, I don't think there are Vulcan gods. Well, there's that those giant statues in the motion picture. I mean, by, I guess mysticism in the sense of, is it mysticism to say our ancestors, once we tamed our emotions, still saw the logic in trying to survive as we did? You yes. know, to make sure that we didn't just don't become this... Yeah, yeah, exactly. The eyebrow rays, they were able to animate the eyebrow rays. Great. They love the eyebrow rays. Yes. <laughs> uh, the neck pinch. Uh, yep. it, it being a plot device that Spock didn't yet know. Young Spock did not yet know how to do that. I thought that was great. Uh, and then, well, here's the Spurk line, uh, Lori. Uh, you're like, well, there's another guy with them. But what does McCoy say when they finally come back? Well, well, well. So you two finally got back from your vacation. <laughs> yeah. oh that's at the end though that's at the very end <laughs> yes uh any other best trick tropes um i thought just basically having like a useless red shirt guy who doesn't matter because not only did he leap back through with kirk and spock they always kirk keeps saying i'm the only one who knows and i'm like did you ask the red shirt guy who was with you because <laughs> they did who is that guy yes. yeah what like, was his <laughs> not caring about the red shirt guy i thought was great <laughs> Where's his short trek? <laughs> and then I also put uh, everyone having the same haircut on Vulcan. <laughs> Almost Amanda too. Yes. <laughs> so that was a good one. Um, and then Spock always feeling like he has to choose between Vulcan and human. Yes. Is a good one. But and this one was so pure because he's a child, right? It's like the, the beginning of it. I mean, I'm yeah. not saying, but like, but even yes, grown up Spock is, yes. I feel like is still wrestling with those things in this episode. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. And then I also think like, <laughs> so you could, this was more something you could feel, but when Spock has to go back, Kirk wants to go with him. <laughs> you can tell he <laughs> yes. loves him so much and all <laughs> Kirk cares about, he doesn't care what the repercussions will be for anything else. He just wants Spock back. Yeah. Also, so. I just I love that Kirk's like, I'm ready to go. What well, let, what are we going to do? Let's let's take some action. And yeah. the idea of him just standing and waiting for Spock to come back, yeah, both emotionally like, no, Spock, come back. But also <laughs> I like, oh, like, I just don't want to stand here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, worst Trek tropes. I have one. What do you have? Oh, now I want to hear your one. 
because I have more than one. Great. Uh, well, because to me, I kind of felt like I think I went in being like, I am aware of the animation. I'm aware of the 70s. This <laughs> I'm going to just try to let it wash over me. And for me, a lot of the tropes are like, this is the. They only have 22 minutes. They're very efficient with the usage of tropes. So there was nothing that really, again, it wasn't like, you know, an operation. You hit the sides. There was nothing that really hit the side and caused an <laughs> alarm to go off. Except for this. I've never been a fan of McCoy's outright racism against Spock. That's the, on my list. <laughs> yeah, the end of the episode has him being like, all right, it's time for your crew physicals, and I got your weird physiology all set up. I have to recalibrate every time I do it. But also, it's kind of intertwined. Maybe this is like a second worst Trek trope. I guess it's supposed to be a punchline where, where uh, well, Spock's making a joke of times change, Doctor, because it's not an Andorian first officer. He's like, you know, it could be worse, Doctor. You could be studying, <laughs> doing a test on an Andorian. He's like, what's that supposed to mean? So I guess just kind of like really bad humor, like not even good vaudevillian humor at the end of as the tag for some Star Trek episodes. That was the worst Trek joke for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's also the the McCoy being <laughs> racist comes up even earlier. So I had it where uh, he says some I think it's. Or maybe Scotty says it. Now I forget who says it. But one of them says, Captain, I was expecting there to be one of the historians with you, but a Vulcan? <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, that's tricky because did they forget that there was an entire starship of Vulcans? And so like Spock's not unique, but that's, right. that is funny. Uh, but I like it better under your guise of like, McCoy just doesn't like Vulcans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's probably and also why would he have to recalibrate anything? Exactly. I, that sounds that just seems That's crazy. Right. right. Um, and even in that line, the the end of that joke is a tr is a TV trope because of the way Spock says it because he says phrase comma character name rephrase mm -hmm. times change doctor times change. Yeah. I'm like nobody talks like that unless you're on television. That's right. <laughs> Doubly bad trope. There we go. And then one other weird, very Star Trek-y thing, which is whenever you have a female character. So Amanda, did you notice her pose? Oh, <laughs> like, I sure did. <laughs> <laughs> She's like all sassy with a hand on her hip, like in this weird frozen, like, I am a woman, a shapely woman pose. <laughs> am I, um, is there something wrong with me? You can throw a flag on this, Lori. Did it look like she was coming on to Spock? With that pose? <laughs> I just felt like she's in that pose all the time. Okay. All right. That's fair. <laughs> it didn't feel specific to Spock. <laughs> just any any man who comes by. She's just... Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, now it's time for the line must be drawn here. Great lines. This one had quite a few. I have I'm to putting, say. I put this in here. Earther, barbarian, <laughs> emotional Earther, you're a Terran, Spock. You could never be a true Vulcan. It needs to be in there. It's so poorly delivered, but also the mispronunciation of Terran. And just also, these are not great insults, but it conveys the point. He's being bullied. And it's like, I guess these are good Vulcan insults, to be honest. <laughs> being Earther. Earther, emotional Earther. Um, I liked it. Go, go ahead. 
Um, there's another mispronunciation thing, which is very animated series. There's always some weird pronunciation where Spock says sacrifice instead of sacrifice. <laughs> I had a thought about that. It just seems like these are one take reads. Yeah, you know, some, sometimes you just kind of run out of gas or like you're looking at the next word. And so sometimes you mispronounce the one that you're about to say. Um, but that's true. <laughs> um, I had another couple of good lines. So I really liked um, <laughs> McCoy's reaction to Kirk not knowing who the Andorian was. <laughs> and McCoy says, I thought, sure, you'd know Thalen by now. He's been your first officer for five years. <laughs> like, no, what are you talking about? But just like. I thought I figured you'd know him after five years. <laughs> yeah, uh, DeForest Kelly was reading that uh, as he was sitting in first class, and they yeah. were like, "So we're about to take off." He's like, "I gotta get these lines out." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I liked uh, Spock saying to Sarek, "In the family, all is silence. No more will be said of it." I had, I try to go home. You are too old and too fat for this. <laughs> I have that's, that one too. <laughs> that's how you always get around mother because he's whining. He wants to come with him. It does not work with me. Go home, Aichaya. That's great. <laughs> like you're old and fat. Is <laughs> yep. I, I like Spock saying, I will need a Vulcan Desert soft suit and boots and a small selection of streetwear. So for 8877 <laughs> Vulcaneers, the carry bag should be of the same period. <laughs> he looks so cool in that hoodie, though, in his getup. With the, the uniform underneath? Yeah. Well, now you know it's called a soft suit. Soft suit. Um, the, one of the lines when he's counseling himself where, and young Spock asks, how do you know all this about human emotions? He goes, there is some human blood in my family line. It is not fatal. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. That's a good one. Well, there's one, Sarek says to Spock, you know, my home is yours if you pass this way again. And Spock says, I think I shall not. Yeah. Peace and well, long life. Before that, when um, young Spock's trying to decide what to do with the dying Aichaya, he says, yeah, old Spock tells him, a Vulcan would face such a loss without tears by understanding every life comes to an end when time demands it. Loss of life is to be mourned, but only if the life was wasted. Aichaya's yeah, I love not. that. It was great and just very thoughtful and very simple and direct. You know, all the things that children really respond to. It's not a matter of talking up to them or talking down to them or, you know, it's just like, can you be direct and can you show that you care? And and again, Spock being emotional, but also if he can't, he's obviously he makes it very clear. We have emotions, you know, but it, yes. it's just very nice. Um, uh, something that's totally been forgotten in the last 50 years <laughs> Vulcans have emotions yes they do you're stripping this episode of every part like it's a buffalo except for a, the heart the key the, the crux of the entire premise of Spock is that he has emotions oh well well in Strange New Worlds at least he's I mean they've had some silliness with his emotions but he also does say like, no, I do, and they're stronger than yours, he tells Uhura in the musical episode that I am obsessed with. I'm going to cut all that out, Lord. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Loriosa's love for the musical episode is undying. It I've... is insane how much I love. And I play the soundtrack every day. <laughs> uh. Well, again, your advocacy for for Star Trek and and what to love and, you know, just that you love it when it's well-made. I mean, that's, it's infectious. It's hard not to appreciate 
it when you are giving it such praise but i mean the show drives me crazy in a hundred other ways where i'm just like <laughs> ah but that one i'm like bring it play the music <laughs> cue the music let's go <laughs> now it's time for the line must be drawn there great art or i maybe it should change this to because i just watched measure of the man measure of a man the other night there it sits <laughs> well there it sits <laughs> exactly <laughs> I already said Spock looks so cool in his soft suit, but let's talk about Sarek and let's talk about their groovy 70s house. house. Yes. Oh, with the, the, first with of the all, fountain inside it. The fountain is enormous. You've it's never seen huge. it. <laughs> Even other Vulcans are like, that fountain's a little emotional, Sarek. <laughs> What's going on? It is ostentatious. It is it's not awesome. logical. No. <laughs> uh, here's how 70s the show is. The production design of that house looks like a pad in the 70s. And, yes. And, and Sarek's hair and his clothes, that is something that would have been designed <laughs> in this. How did they do that? I, I feel like <laughs> Mark Leonard would have worn that outfit somewhere. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> it looks like some, like just the 70s. Somehow they were just channeling it perfectly. I'm like, you know, you guys can draw anything of any time. <laughs> it's like the 70s was such a strong influence on all aesthetics that it influenced the animation. Even the Vulcan soft suit, which I'm just going to keep saying soft suit as many it's times so as cool, I can get though. away with. The soft suit looks so cool. <laughs> but it was very 70s. But like the the way they colored the the metal, like the yeah. guest room that Spock's sitting in when he's sitting on the bed, and like the curtains and the shelves, I'm like, that's a seventies. It was very seventies. <laughs> I got to say this. I'm so glad that the animated series is the seventies representation of the, of Star Trek, because I don't know how much research or reading about phase two you've ever done, but like Star Trek would have died if it was made live action phase two existed. Yeah. The, the chronic seventies of the design aesthetic, the writing, the, the way it would have looked that halfway video, half the bad film look, like it just would have sunk it. No one, everyone would be like, okay, that's enough. We don't need any more of that. So the fact that we, the 70s did infect Star Trek, but just here, it it gives it a certain level of charm. I can't believe it though. Was it like the lead in the air? What was going on? Like the fact that it would, the fact that it would infiltrate the design of an animated series is ridiculous. Mark Lennard looks, sorry, Sarek looks like Mark Lennard in costume as Sarek in 1973 yeah i can't believe it uh so does amanda though she looks like she's wearing like one of those um you know silk nightgowns almost yes, or like a robe like a caftan or yes a, and like know, she's almost... on quaaludes all day and like yeah. she's just a housewife and with her hair like I, i'm like that is not amanda from from journey to babel no <laughs> That is Majel Barrett. And they just were like, when they yes. went to record her lines, they took a picture of her and they're like, that's how Amanda's going to look. <laughs> we want some sassy Majel yeah, attitude right. in there. Uh, but the house looked amazing. I, I just said the fountain, everything. It just looked amazing. <laughs> yeah, I have like the house, Vulcan in general. Sarek, I mean, his face looked great. He yes. did look like himself. And I enjoyed the bird guy. The, the Lamacha? 
the historian no the historian oh. bird guy okay. i forget his species because he shows up later <laughs> so but- i i have the yes in, in in the book in star trek the official guide to the animated series you can read more about about the bird guy but let's talk about him in this next section do you have any more uh great art you want to spotlight i'm i'm good No, I think that pretty much covers it. I mean, I can only say I was a kid in the 70s and I had a lot of crazy. I had a green shag rug and bright yellow dresser and a mirror that looked like a big flower with petals all around it. So I lived this era. So I was born (laughs) in the 80s and the only thing I can, well, besides some like cabinetry and and like, uh, you know, furniture, the one main thing I do remember surviving from the seventies from like, from like my parents and stuff is the waterbed. Yes. That, that we did had arrive, a waterbed that made also. it into the eighties with us. Yeah. We also had a device, very Star Trek. It was called a Lumia and it was a giant black box, like as big as a big, big, big TV. And you turned it on and then colors would just swirl around on it. <laughs> <laughs> there was no internet at the time so swirling colors right. you <laughs> plug it in it. and colors would swirl i assume while you were like in your smoking mode right. and doing your thing it's like <laughs> what you said though with the saturday morning cartoons you watched what was on so. <laughs> yes the lumia was it <laughs> that's right <laughs> uh, what part of this will they teach at starfleet academy let's talk about these historians so probably <laughs> the work done by these historians who were studying federation history by way of the guardian of forever, which it reminds me of assignment earth. Remember in that captain's log, that ham handed, like we're, tra- we travel back in time to right. do some research. It's like, Oh, we're doing that. But it seems like they played with at least a little bit. The star Trek writers did play with the idea of like, we've got stress calls, you know, like we've got all of our star Trek mission types is time travel. Part of those I don't think they should do more of that because God knows there's been plenty of Star Trek time travel stories, but it is an interesting kind of thread that they've barely touched on. It works perfectly for like a cartoon, sorry, for an animated show here, but they'll definitely be teaching about what they learned in some of these missions, I would imagine. Yes, but I also think they'll be teaching when someone's in the Guardian, don't double dip and try and study (laughs) something else at the same time. Yeah, so like the Federation historian or the Starfleet historian department definitely needed some different provisos or guidelines for sure. Yes, like you need to, when someone's in there, you go take a coffee break and then you wait for them to come out before you do more stuff because that's what caused the whole problem. (laughs) All right, Trek, marry, or kill yesteryear. So in the past, I think I would have said Trek, but I think now I'm going to marry it. I it's a, like an overwhelming Mary. And if there's just one episode of the animated series, you will watch, watch this one. Uh, I really think it's that important to Star Trek history. And I really think it's a wonderful episode of television, which for me is sort of the baseline of my starting point for Mary's. Like, is this a good episode of TV that could just exist on its own? And I believe this episode was how the animated series was nominated for an Emmy award for best yeah. children's programming. So yep. all the more reason why people should check it out. I still want them to go back and re-record the kid. And then I'll be like fully marrying it. <laughs> Yesteryear, really an impressive episode of Star Trek, I think, in a lot of ways. It would have been a fun episode to see in the original series, I think. Uh, I don't yeah. know how they could have done it in a way that wouldn't have been too kooky. I think DC Fontana wrote a really great episode of animated Star Trek. 
She took full advantage of the medium. Like she realized now I can do the things I couldn't do before. Like mm -hmm. create that pet that was just a one-off mention yep. on the original series and make it really work and make it look good. And so, you know, she, she was so creative and suddenly was unfettered, even though, yes, there were limitations to the animation. Yep. And I think when you look at the whole animated series, they were able to do some really fun things that they couldn't have done in live action where they all shrink or Kirk and Spock are suddenly breathing water and they're swimming all the time. All these kinds of things that are so much fun that would have been impossible to do. How do you feel about this format? <laughs> we're trying it out. Yeah. I mean, you'll cut it down and that'll make it better. <laughs> It'll just be it'll just be you talking. That's how it usually no, gets. No, 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 no. I mean, I think it works because it's fun. Like when I listen to you guys, it's fun, and I like I like hearing you guys do a good episode, and I like hearing you guys do a bad episode because it's just fun to hear your takes on it. So I feel like this is no different. Yeah, I'm largely trying to do the show mainly because I'm like, what about the ones in the middle or the ones I kind of dismissed? And I'm really glad that I'm doing it for now the animated series, and we're going to do lower decks soon uh, because I kind of did dismiss the animated series and and not having yesteryear now as part of my personal canon of episodes I love uh, I would have been missing out so I'm glad I got to do this and I'm really glad you came on for the first one I love having you on Lori uh, hope to have you back soon for a Voyager because I know how much you love Voyager yeah I do love Voyager <laughs> oh anyway is there anything you want to plug um no, any, I just any books coming out, any TV shows that you're producing? Well, so uh, the the Brooklyn Nine Nine book has been delayed multiple times, and now is coming out in June. Okay, um, I now wrote it like I think almost two years ago. The Gangster's Guide to Housekeeping is out there, and people All seem right. to be enjoying it. Um, and I can't say what it is yet, but I just got. I'm about to sign a thing to do a new book. Oh, but another exciting. show that I love that I'm very excited about. And then I would just say like Trek movie, please listen to our all access Star Trek podcast. Come to Trek movie. I am planning on interviewing the songwriters from the strange new worlds musical episode, but I just put up an interview. I did at comic con with Mike McMahon. I also do a newsletter about podcasts and I've talked about Trek Mary kill in it right. more than once. Appreciate um, it very much. But that's a weekly because I used to hate podcasts. <laughs> I used to hate them and be like, why would anybody want to listen to a podcast? And now I have one and it's we're on episode 161 and I listen to a ton of them and I love them. Thanks so much for being a part of this. We will be back next month with another set of animated episodes because SAG's striking still. I'm not sure if it's going to be another pair of animated episodes from the animated series or we're going to start Lower Decks next month. There is a guest that will determine you know, that eligibility. So we'll figure that out. But next month, once a month, we're going to be doing two animated episodes uh, on top of the four live action ones we do. So until next month and next week, TMK out. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Sure. That was fun. <laughs>